I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a hand-curated selection of artisanal stories from our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, just how rich do you have to be to get hitched? Something fishy in the Dutch herring industry and an eloquent defence of the humble pager. But first, it was Benjamin Franklin who wrote that nothing was certain in this world except death and taxes. Well, bowing to the inevitable, the case for taxing death was our cover line this week. Inheritance tax is distrusted across all income brackets. And so politicians around the rich world have spent the last half century winning votes by lowering rates or by abolishing it altogether. But our cover leader argued that though it may not be much loved, inheritance tax is not only necessary, it's fair. Some people argue for a punitive inheritance tax. They start with the negative argument that dead people no longer enjoy the general freedom to disperse their wealth as they wish, as the dead have no rights. But inheritances are deeply personal, and the biggest single gift that many give to causes they believe in and loved ones they may have cherished. If anything, as the expression of their last wishes, bequests carry more weight than their passing fancies do. So defenders of high inheritance taxes argue that they're a lot more meritocratic. Heirs have rarely done anything to deserve the money that comes their way. Liberals, from John Stuart Mill to Theodore Roosevelt, thought that needed correcting. Half of Europe's billionaires have inherited their wealth, and their number seems to be rising. But it's all becoming a bit harder to sort out as the causes of inequality are changing. In rich countries, the advantages that wealthy parents pass to their offspring begin with the sorting mechanism of marriage, in which elites increasingly pair up with elites. They continue with the benefits of education, social capital and lavish gifts, not in the deeds to the ancestral pile. Some respond that the death tax should therefore be buried. Not only is it right to let people hand their private property to their children, they say, but also bequests are often the fruits of labour that has already been taxed. And a large inheritance tax bill is destructive because it can cause the dismemberment of family firms and farms and force the sale of ancestral homes. But we argued these arguments are short-sighted. In fact, inheritance taxes are exceptionally fair. Unlike income taxes, they do not destroy the incentive to work. Unlike capital gains taxes, heavier estate taxes do not seem to dissuade saving or investment. Unlike sales taxes, they are progressive. To the extent that a higher inheritance tax can fund cuts to all other taxes, the system can be more efficient. So how high should the tolls be as we all prepare to cross the river Styx? To find out, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com.
Now, apart from high death duties, it can seem like the wealthy get all the luck. And this week's special report explained how they're getting even luckier in love. In the West, marriage is tying couples together, but it's putting asunder social classes. In the last 50 years, it's transformed from a near-universal rite of passage into the definitive status symbol. In the first quarter of 2017, 65% of top professional adults in Britain were married, according to the Labour Force survey. For people in routine jobs, the proportion was 44%, and for the unemployed and those who had never worked, 40%. Among women with young children, the social divide is even sharper. And there's a clearly polarising trend in many rich countries. Across Europe, except in Belgium, highly educated women are less likely to have children outside marriage. In America, education and marriage go hand in hand, to the extent that marriage rates are now higher among women with PhDs than among women with bachelor's degrees. Other studies show that women tend to marry men who share their attitude to financial risk, and that people with similar levels of parental wealth tend to end up together. So the nuptial state is becoming something of a trophy. More than in the past, it is a fulfilling union between two people who collaborate, if still rather unequally, in childcare, housework and money earning. Almost all couples now live together before they marry, so people are well aware of what their partners expect of them. But the opportunity cost for nuptial bliss is rising. If you insist on a strong relationship and a healthy bank balance before tying the knot and on piling up even more wealth before starting a family, your chances of having the number of children you want become slimmer. Faced with messy reality, though, people of different means prioritise different things. These days, a pregnant 18-year-old would probably not marry her boyfriend even if he asked. He may be incapable of supporting her and the baby, And she has better options outside marriage than she did in 1960. And you can read more about the new meaning of happily ever after all around the world online or in the pages of this week's special report. One of the major factors driving the transformation of marriage has been the changing role of women. The last in our series of special American editions of The Economist Asks wondered, could a woman oust Donald Trump in 2020? And I asked Celinda Lake, a Democrat political strategist and pollster, what the ideal candidate might look like next time round. Someone who listens, someone who is a change agent, someone who has been a community leader or made a difference on an issue, someone who has an economic plan, a mom with probably grown children. And I think the real key here is to have more than one woman. That sounds great. If only we could produce that perfect woman candidate in in elections. (laughs) The the Blade Runner replicant. Thank you very much, Celinda Lake. Thank you very much for having me. And you can listen to the whole series of podcasts exploring the impact of the first year of the Trump presidency on The Economist Asks. And there's material, too, across Economist Radio, including our great Trumpy quiz. Go to Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. Modern America seems more divided than ever. In Thanksgiving week, our data team did some statistical magic. They set out to measure how far people are willing to cross party lines for some pumpkin pie. The average American who celebrated Thanksgiving outside their home county left home at 3.40pm on Wednesday, travelled for 300 miles, arrived six hours later at their destination and then stayed for nearly three days. Unsurprisingly, 
people from counties whose residents travel the farthest tend to stay longer. In this wide country, that's some significant variation. Clallam County near Seattle comes top. Its residents travel 1,200 miles on average and stay for four days at their destination. At the other end of the scale is Macoupin County in Illinois, whose residents travel just 100 miles and stay for just 42 hours. But however far the pumpkin pilgrims travelled, politics still had an impact. Residents of democratic counties who travelled to less democratic places were more likely to shorten their stays. People from Republican counties who went to less Republican ones, by contrast, were more likely to stay for longer. I leave you to draw your own conclusions from that by exploring a map of the Pumpkin Index in this week's United States section. You might let us know where you figure. Now, while no festive table in the United States would be complete without a turkey, in Holland the herring's the thing. In a highly regulated industry, this year there's something fishy going on. As our Europe correspondent Matthew Steinglass told Money Talks, our finance and economics podcast, there is a crucial national herring test carried out each year, and two extremely powerful judges travel the country sampling the herring at 150 stores and shops. The accusation is that one of these judges is biasing his scores in favor of herring stands that get their fish from a supplier who he also works for. The accusation of uh, what they call belonging strangling, which means、uh, conflict of interest, is one of the worst accusations that you can level in Dutch society. And、uh, this accusation that there's something wrong with the objectivity of the ratings that the herring tents are getting—it's put a sort of a rotten smell over the whole business, basically. Has the scandal jeopardized Dutch trust in their herring raters forever? Find out by subscribing to Money Talks. It's published every Tuesday. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. The moment in 2001, a space odyssey in which the spaceship central computer Hal takes control from the humans. It might help explain why people have been relatively slow to trust and adopt so-called smart home hubs. For now, devices to control every appliance in your home, from TV to heating, must be separately connected and programmed. But as our innovation editor Paul Markley explained on our Babbage podcast, in the future, power might lie with the humblest bit of existing household tech: the fuse box. All the wires going to the house come from this box, so it's an ideal place to actually monitor what's going on in the house and control items. And each circuit could have a, a meter in it, so you could meter individually different parts of your house and even different plug sockets, which would allow the utilities, for instance, to perhaps offer you a different rate for your lighting circuit to the one that charges up your electric car. We tried promoting a message of out with the old and in with the new a couple of weeks ago in an article marvelling at how many British businesses still rely on apparently outdated technology, and the editor was bombarded with outraged letters. Dr. Michael Foster of Perth Royal Infirmary in Scotland wrote in with an eloquent defence of the pager. My current pager is well over twenty years old. It has survived many falls onto hard theatre floors and. Several well-aimed impacts with walls, scrub sinks, and toilets have not silenced it. Now there's a bitter pill for any listener who's ever had to put their phone to bed in a bag of rice. If a more robust, cost-effective, and reliable replacement is ever invented, I will retire my pager. Until then, 
held together with sticky tape, it will carry on doing its job better than all the alternatives. Well, Hal from 2001 took away my pager many years ago. But please do keep sending us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. You can read more of the articles mentioned and find all of our other glorious podcasts online. In London, this is The Economist. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.